0: Wait, hold on. I cannot hear you one second. I'll fix the issue. I can't hear your voice in my head. And your voice is (laughs) on. Why can't you you hear
1: my voice in your
0: head, Tony? One second. Let me try to fix it out. Wait, hello? 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 Hello!
1: See, when you yell like that, It doesn't go in the red, but when I go, ah, ah, ah." It went in the red for me. Did it? Yeah. Ah, ah, ah,
0: Tony, please. Ooh, gospel music. Uh, It sounds like a Little Mermaid, too, kind of. I feel like Ursula would have made a good preacher.
1: You remember that, though? That was one hymn that was always like between passages. It was like, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to sit at the back of the church, uh-huh. and there was this one dude who would just like pass me two and it was kind of cool. But then my sister, Gigi, she would sit at the back, and... Wait, when we, are we recording? <laughs> we can, this could be it. No, oh, no, no. I don't want me
1: like fucking around out with shitty gospel crap.
0: Why? <laughs> All right, whatever. You should be proud of that. It's fine. It's not fine. It's great. Do you want to record? Oh, that was that turned into time of the season. By-
1: it did. Wait, hold on. So when you were at church, some random dude would pass you toonies?
0: Yeah. And the Toonie dude? The Toonie dude. He was also my art teacher. One day I'm going to show Excuse you a picture. Me? What What is your life? He came to my house and tutored me on how to paint. He tutored you with Toonies? No, that was just like a bonus for being awesome. Where did he put them? It was actually pretty gangster. So he would give me a handshake
1: uh-huh. and then it
0: would be in his hand and he would just like it to me. And what would you do with it? Save it for a rainy day. Did you have a church piggy bank? Yeah, I think I, I don't I think I had like one of those trick piggy banks where it's like a mirror so it looks empty. You know what I mean? Uh I
1: think I know what you mean.
0: It's like an optical illusion so it's like a cube cut in half with a mirror so it looks like a full cube. Yeah, so he actually taught me how to paint and my parents have a painting that he did of me at, at like 9 years old and it's It's really good likeness. I'm a little embarrassed of it because of how fat I used to be. (laughs) And he really captured that pretty well. (laughs) Can can you get your mom to take a picture of it for her um, book journal thing? So she wanted to bring it to me and she actually, years ago she came up with it. She's like, hey, look what I found. And then wanted to hang it on the wall. And I was (laughs) like, I can't have this in my house. First of all, like, that's the exact same thing dictators do, but also it's just not flattering. But yeah, I'll, I'll definitely get like a copy of it to show you.
1: I think it would be dope if you had like a self-portrait of yourself in a housecoat, like on a on a leatherback chair in front of a mahogany bookshelf and a fireplace. It would have to be like really ironic, but I couldn't do it seriously. So this person who painted the portrait of you was a painter. Like he painted portraits of many people.
0: Well, not necessarily portraits, but yeah, he was a painter. He taught me how to paint. Um, He was a great teacher. I have my parents at least still have some of the art that I did with him. Some of it I ended up selling, but like, yeah, he was. Whoa!
1: How many like child artists sell their
0: work? Are you like all disabled child artists sell their work? (laughs) I think it it's, was like, oh, good for you. Yeah. Here's another tyranny, Like anything
1: painted by a wheelie is immediately like Banksy level.
0: I had a pretty good entrepreneur thing going on when I was a kid. I painted stuff and sold it. I did a bunch of art. I also remember those. This is like a really nineties thing. Those um bead animals. Tony, you're basically just confessing to being
1: a, chi- a child prodigy because this yeah, is I'm basically not. Basically, just
0: con- confessing. To being born in the 90s. No, you're not. I didn't sell any fucking paintings when I was like a... It's not like I made bank or something. It's just like (laughs) people be like, oh, that's cool. Can I buy it from you? I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Thanks.
1: Man, you definitely made toonies. Yeah. That's a big deal. Big deal.
0: I mean, my little uh... (laughs) three-inch... Excuse me. (laughs) I guess the bragging stops here, right? I was talking about my piggy bank. Sure, and dude. I'll have you know, it's just about
1: where you store your car. <laughs> so wait, so you and your art teacher went to church together, and then painted stuff and sold it for mad
0: cash. This is a weird story. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He would. He was part of the choir, and so he would. <laughs> Why is this killing you? I I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> who is this guy? His name was Dick.
1: Was it though?
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> go on. So he was in the choir. He would, I sat at the back of the church and the choir, oral test or whatever, that threw the church from the back. And so, as they were preparing for their first hymn that they walked through the church during, he was usually standing right beside me. And so, he would give me a little handshake, slip a tuny, sometimes a loony, but if it was really good that it was a tuny, into my hand. And then just like, unsolicited and also just no words were exchanged.
1: On the days where you sinned, you'd like get a corner, a, a quarter?
0: Sometimes he would just give me a handshake and I'd be like, oh. Really? <laughs> I definitely did take it for granted as a kid. I was like, ooh, I'm going to be $2 richer every Sunday. As I started to factor it into my like candy budget. Is Dick still alive? No.
1: Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Because I thought maybe we we could interview him.
0: That would be awesome. I'd love to. The the most we can get is the portrait he did of me, which really did capture my fatness very well. I really like, I don't want to
1: ask you any probing questions about your...
0: You can ask me probing questions.
1: Like your childhood uh, obesity or whatever.
0: Sure, go for it. It's all on the table.
1: No, I, as we know, I have a habit of accidentally fat shaming celebrities.
0: Yeah, but I'm giving you permission to fat shame me and I'm not a celebrity.
1: But I don't want to... Like, I've seen pictures of you as a kid, and I could tell our listeners that you you look healthy. Like, you you didn't look neglected or lazy. You were just a little rotund. That would be my name, little rotund. <laughs> you, you looked like, you know... I, I,
0: I don't know how to put this. Not, it doesn't upset me. Like, whatever. Some... <laughs> I used to be fat. I think I, the only reason I'm skinny now... It's because I have a harder time eating. If I could feed myself, I still think I'd be fat. I think I'm fat at heart. I don't think you are. I think so. When we
1: talk about diet, you're very regimented. You're always very aware of... I like
0: eating healthy, but that's because I want to live a long time and I don't want to put myself at any disadvantage for my own health. Of course. I would probably eat a lot of healthy foods.
1: I'm sorry, you'd probably eat a lot of unhealthy foods if you were able-bodied?
0: No, I would eat a lot of the healthy foods. Like, I would just eat more. So I'd just be finer, I think.
1: I don't think so.
0: Have you ever pictured what you think you would look like if you were
1: able-bodied? I think I'd just look like a Ukrainian soccer player.
0: Would you be ripped? Maybe. Yeah?
1: Well, I have the mesomorphic body type. But would you work out? Yeah, for sure.
0: As a very good segue into today's episode, if you could create an avatar for the virtual world, and it doesn't have to represent you in any way, it could even just be, like, not a human, what would you create? Jeez, I think you'd probably have to have an
1: imagination
0: for this question. You don't think you have an imagination?
1: No, I I do, but I don't have access to it at the moment. Um...
0: Where is it? Is it in your piggy bank?
1: Yeah, no, I dropped it under my desk and I can't pick it up. And I'm tired of asking my dad to get things under my desk.
0: Hey, dad, can you just grab my uh, creativity? Yeah,
1: no, I think I've I've run out of... My dad has run out of spoons for picking things up under my desk this week.
0: Picking up literal spoons?
1: <laughs> Not literal spoons, just like pencils and things that I use when I'm coding throughout you the day. You use
0: pencils, still, right? Eh?
1: Well, yeah, whenever I write pseudocode, I always write it on paper first.
0: That's really weird of you.
1: No, it's not weird. It's building a mental model in my head before I actually type it out because...
0: Yeah, oh, well, you can type it in, like, Word.
1: No, the act of typing, like, doesn't commit the the thing to memory as well as writing. Really? Yeah, That the, I'm sorry. I, I know you can't write, so I'm I'm being ableist. That's um, <laughs> But But, the yeah, paper. the... Like I said, the tactile element is—it uh, goes a long way, at least for me, toward encoding information.
0: I guess yeah, I definitely process things differently when I, it, like, when I'm dictating text, for example. I like it. I I use my voice to text feature now a lot, and I feel like my texts are more natural. Like I used to text to just kind of get the point across in as few words as possible. Yeah, because that was what was easiest. But uh-huh. now that I have a pretty good phone that has good speech recognition, I just kind of dictate my text and I like it because when I'm texting, I find that I overthink what I'm going to say a lot more than I ever would in person. I don't really do before I talk in person. Yeah. And I'm always like, that's such a filtered down version of me that I, it's just not going to translate to real life. So especially when I'm talking to someone, And let's say I meet them online, I'm trying now to be conscious of like just responding as if they said that to me and I was there with them in the room Mm -hmm. because I don't want to give them some like filtered poetic version of myself. And then they meet me and they're like, oh, you talk very differently in person.
1: I've, I've noticed that with friends of mine who are disabled, that like text is quite a stilting medium.
0: Mm-hmm. Even for
1: people who have more access to their like fine motor skills and hands for typing, it is quite tedious to text. Ironically, it, usually the people who have to use te- text-to-speech or speech-to-text are always very, very verbose individuals, very well, like their primary form of communication is word, and they're just wonderfully spoken. This is a stereotype, so I'm having trouble getting through it. But the point is, texting is is quite a handicapped or quite a handicapping medium. And it's frustrating because I can always tell, like, oh, I should really call this person because I'm really not doing this conversation justice.
0: I definitely get flack a lot from my friends for being a bad texter. And I am a bad texter because I'm also, I do that thing all the time where i all like, see a text, read it, and be like, oh, that's cool. Definitely going to say something funny about that. And then I just get back to like whoever I'm talking to in real life or whatever work I'm working on. And then sometimes days pass, and I'm like, huh, I wonder why they didn't respond to my joke. And then I go and look, and I never sent anything.
1: I think it's also a symptom of being in your 30s and having... Like a working a 40-hour week and then just having things that prioritize your time outside of social media and texting and whatnot. So you're just not as ready, at the ready to accommodate people.
0: I don't know because I know people older than me and younger than me that really, really like texting and hate phone calls. I know a lot of people that are like terrified of the idea of calling someone to talk to them.
1: I don't like calling people to request a service. Like I hate calling the front desk of any business and, and telling them my problem and then asking them if they have a thing I need. For some reason, that whole exercise is really annoying because it never really obeys the natural flow of conversation. Right. And you're, you're ne- the point is never actually to connect with the person. It's more to receive something from them. And so yeah, I just it's fucking, super I, I fucking hate it. It's like really gross. I recently had to call motion specialties to ask for a a replacement plastic doohickey for my joystick and i hated it the whole time because it was like i don't know just like trying to explain yeah that doesn't
0: bother well that specifically wouldn't bother me no that's because i like those kinds of i like problem solving and like trying to see behind the curtain in terms of like how motion works and like yeah. Sometimes I'll just give them the part number and be like, Do You can you get this?
1: Yeah. But you have a like a bizarre fascination w- with the machinations of your chair.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And you take pride in in understanding what you're driving?
0: But like I would rather order food online than call someone and be like, hey, can you bring me bananas, please?
1: Well, it has like you also don't really relate to social anxiety, right? Because I think that's also what we're talking about, or what most people are facing when they say they'd rather text.
0: I don't know if if it's fair to say that I don't relate to social anxiety. There are definitely situations where I feel anxious or uncomfortable, but yeah, I trust that we're all people, and I don't see myself as like a failure if. A joke doesn't land, or there's an awkward pause. Actually, I think it's way easier to deal with those in real life or over the phone. I don't like sending a message and then it goes unreceived or like no response for a while if it's like meant to be a joke or something. Then I started to overthink, like, oh, is that (laughs) (laughs) offensive?
1: The only time you experience social anxiety is when you're not sure if a joke is being received as you intended.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's usually like, oh no, am I crossing a line or something? Because I hated
1: that call to motion specialties because I'm secretly afraid that one of the technicians is going to judge me because I have no idea what goes on in my power chair. They don't,
0: well, that's their job.
1: I know, but then there's also the stigma of me being, like, a web developer and ostensibly technically oriented, and I still don't really give a fuck about what my chair does.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's a prerequisite. Like, you can be really good at web development and, you know, coding and all that kind of stuff and still think that paper is a good medium.
1: I mean, I, I, I guess it's, like, the disabled equivalent of, like, being handy, like, as a dude. You know, like, yeah. the one way you can be a handy dude as a disabled guy is at the very least to be able to tell a uh, power chair tech what's wrong with your chair.
0: What Would would you be able to troubleshoot issues if you were, like, away from home and something wasn't working?
1: No. So that's where my anxiety
0: comes from. Yeah, I have the same. Like, I think I can for some stuff for sure. I just don't like not knowing how stuff works. I don't, You like to be prepared yeah maybe yeah that's probably what it is
1: yeah because i've seen this in you in other in other ways yeah yeah i think part of it is like a weird sort of like gender role obligation thing happening where it's like have you ever been in a conversation with another dude and you have mutual interests or chemistry in one facet of life and then like they're into i don't know cars or or sports Olympics. sports or something and so then you like there's a moment where they switch over into sports mode and they're like oh you know that daryl sittler like it had an amazing slap shot last night or some
0: bullshit and then i mean you got the right sport you did pretty well there
1: thanks thanks and then they're like yeah yeah, yeah but coach bombay is a real jackass Coach
0: Bombay.
1: and they're and they're like And they're like, did you see that ludicrous display last night? It's funny when
0: you do your guy voice. Yeah. And how different it is from your voice as a guy.
1: Well, it's usually down here.
0: You sound like a deep-throated bimbo. (laughs) Like you talk like, I guess the word you use is himbo. But it's very much like, what's a man? You ever think about sports and stuff? You like to play golf or whatever?
1: There's like young bros are down here. And and like Baby Boomer uh Mr. Joe is over here. I everything I say is with an air of authority, even though I, I may not know what I'm talking about, Mr. Joe. So you better listen. You never know what could happen. <laughs> I don't know. And then there's my normal voice which is like Michael Sarah cadence.
0: You made the Michael Sarah comparison before, and I think he would play you really well. But I don't know if you have his cadence.
1: Wait, no, no, no. He wouldn't because we hated Gregory go boom. We hated Gregory go boom.
0: Yeah, but he would, he would go boom. Are you saying I'm Gregory and I would go boom? No. I'm yes. saying he's an actor and he would play you. He okay. would sit at his computer uh-huh. with a microphone in front of his face. Yeah. Writing on a piece of paper in front of his $5,000 computer.
1: You th- You think you're judging me for using pen and paper?
0: It's outrageous, and you're killing trees. <laughs> Do you think it's like some kind of
1: uh, middle tier ableist flex?
0: Yeah, I think that's what it is. Because I miss being able to like write, and I, I have you ever been complimented on your handwriting? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a weird really thing because people are surprised that you write normally. Yeah, I know. It's not even that it's good. It's just it works.
1: Well, excuse me, Tony. Speak for yourself. No I like my writing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yeah, like I have, I people expect it to be chicken scratch or something. Yeah, I think so. But then there's there's a weird duality there because people like uh, uh, able-bodied people always assume, like we've said a million times, uh, that a disabled guy must be really good at something for them to be in the in the room. And so it's this weird thing where they're like they talk <laughs> down to you, but they also expect expect you to be exceptional.
0: I think it depends who you're there with.
1: Yeah. Oh, true. I love attending meetings with certain coworkers because just being associated to them means I must be at least somewhat worthy of the conversation.
0: Have you ever been in public with a, a woman who isn't dating you? But you, you just hope that people around you think you're together.
1: Oh, I don't see that wouldn't be fair to that woman. But I can't, I can't lie. Like I wouldn't,
0: I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate the thought. <laughs> but have you done it? Because I'm just trying to see if it only happens to you for guys. Because you're doing the same thing for guys. Well, yeah. yeah, I'm with him.
1: Well, I mean, I, I guess so. I don't know. That's a tough question, man. Maybe subconsciously I'm doing that, but (laughs) I only want somebody... This is a weird question.
0: I've been asked before, like obviously usually we get, is that your nurse? Is that your sister? Is that your human-shaped dog? But but (laughs) (laughs) sometimes people will be like, oh, is this your girlfriend? And even if it's not, I'm like, oh, thank you for acknowledging that that could be my girlfriend.
1: Yeah, I see that. Um, I had a thought earlier, but I can't remember what it was. What were? Can we pop the stack?
0: Well, I was asking you if you had a favorite or if you had an ideal avatar. I
1: think we've talked about this before, but i I think I think I would just be like kind of a kind of a jock. Yeah. Based on the way that my parents are.
0: No, I'm not asking what you think you would be most realistically i'm asking if you could reinvent yourself in the oh. metaverse would you oh, that's make, gross. would you make someone that just looks like you
1: i don't know that's like how do you what kind of character do you create in a video game
0: what kind of character do you create in a video game
1: i i, I still want to be me like i think like what makes me me is scarcely ever associated with physicality I okay. I'd like to be a cyclist. Let's say somebody who. So
0: one testicle.
1: <laughs> Lance Ar- Jamie Armstrong.
0: Okay.
1: Because uh, I really want to be interviewed by Oprah for some sort of white collar crime.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: Hold on a minute. I I don't know. Like I I would. This is a tough one. Again, when I think of myself, like whatever it is that I'm good at or whatever I value myself for, I think of things that aren't really physically
0: linked. Sure, yeah. I don't think it has to I don't think it, it's about what you value about yourself as much as just there's nothing wrong with saying I would make it look as close to me as possible.
1: This is really stereotypical, but what I what would what would end up happening is I would have very large legs.
0: Are you gonna make yourself disabled in the metaverse? No. You're not
1: no, because it would be an opportunity to Forego all of that bullshit,
0: okay, so do you give yourself the same physical appearance but you're standing?
1: I would be the same person, but I would be symmetrical. I would probably have uh better hair, <laughs> and I would have lots of leg muscle
0: to find better hair
1: i my hair is just a stupid mop and it do you, have, never...
0: a, do you have a hair icon
1: <laughs> what am i? I make jokes with my coworker all the time that he has immaculate hair. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is it's caught on, it's caught on around the office. Like everyone's realized that his hair is really nice. So you
0: want his hair?
1: No, but like, <laughs> Okay. you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to
0: his hair, I guess. So you're saying yes. No, like in my color. Yeah. Like. It would be funny if you just this is so you were stupid. the same person, We you had like black hair. Be really good. For the record, like my
1: hair compliments toward him are not uncomfortable. This conversation no, I, is, is just slightly awkward for me.
0: We have talked about it with him.
1: Oh, yeah, we have, yeah.
0: So you might change your hair and yeah. then you would just have healthy looking legs or jacked legs. Would you overcompensate?
1: I would grossly overcompensate for yeah. sure.
0: For sure. Was your overcompensating the top half too? Did to you out? No. So you just have sharp legs? Yeah. Like an average body? Yeah. Cause
1: I've just always wanted to have a stable foundation. One of the things that physiotherapists always say to me, like, and they're kind of baffled, they always say, like, build a base with your legs. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm, my legs are here and I can't really move them. I have to think really hard for, like, like, uh, heel down toe and like knee to knee as high as possible. I'm sorry. I was just thinking of like the basic tenets of walking and they're always like, build a, build a base with your legs. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. Cause I can't, I know that they mean like there, there should be a space between your feet such that you are balanced, but my hamstrings are tight and my hips are weird. So my, my legs don't really build a base and my toes never point in the right direction they're very rebe- rebellious and so i i would just like i would become obsessed with with walking perfectly i would want to be like a physiotherapist like dream of a walker <laughs> you know what i mean like if, if 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 rockstar games or industrial light and magic was like we really need a perfect all purpose motion capture of somebody walking i would want to be the the their puppet for the motion capture of my gait because I would want the perfect gait. Does this am, am I just rambling?
0: I started just thinking about what you'd look like with huge legs and a normal size body. <laughs> a little. <sighs> um, but no, um, do you think you have a perfect height?
1: No, I don't care about height, like I said many times.
0: What if you were eight inches tall? <laughs>
1: I guess uh, average height would be fine, but I don't need to, like, tower over people. I don't have a tall person's personality.
0: What does that mean?
1: Like, tall, a lot of, stereotypically speaking, a lot of tall people are very easygoing and, like, friendly giants. I've met a number of friendly giants in my life who are, like, super, super tall.
0: I'm trying to think of, like, mean tall people I've met. Like, Michael Jordan's kind of mean, I guess. Yeah, but everyone in basketball is arguably tall, like pretty much.
1: Yeah, but so so if you're tall in basketball, then you could just be like a tall, short asshole.
0: How many tall people do you think you've met? <laughs>
1: three dozen. Really? Like three dozen tall people that I've had extended conversations with.
0: I feel like we have a different definition of tall because I can only think of like a handful. Okay. I'm thinking like over 6'5".
1: Oh, I don't know if I know anyone over six five. Well, except for my other coworker, who's a friendly giant. Yeah, I don't. Anyway, all I'm saying is I don't have a fucking tall person's personality.
0: I know that it's very, very common for people to need a picture for scale in dating profiles, or at least you have to say explicitly how tall you are. And I think it's because people are more very concerned with height differences. Like tall, tall women generally seem to want men who are even taller. Than
1: I don't care about all of those weird yeah, me I don't get metrics. It.
0: But I think it's because I'm, I've never been able to be concerned with like.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the dating pool, like the open eligible dating pool for us is like so small that I don't even care. Like, I'll take a fucking short guy's dating pool.
0: I don't care. I kind of prefer short women if I'm being honest. <laughs> Just because, like, I can see them better? <laughs> um,
1: I, there was something earlier in the discussion that I wanted to you go... You really
0: want to go back to something. Yeah. But you don't know where it was? Your childhood is so
1: interesting to me. Like, it really seems like, like perfect fodder for a Coen Brothers film.
0: <laughs> what specifically is interesting? I. It just seems
1: like you grew up in, like, a Fargo-esque environment. Around a bunch of like friendly, loving people, and there was dysfunction and stuff, and things you had to tolerate that you never should have.
0: For me, I always sort of just chalked it up to being a small town. Like, everyone didn't really care about material things or their station in life, they just wanted to have a good time, get along help your neighbor, help yourself. As a child, do you feel
1: like you had, this is a loaded question, but do you feel like you had more access to adults
0: because of your disability? Mm, yes. I actually consciously was aware of that as a kid. Me too. Not only did I feel like I had more access to them, yeah. but I also felt like they related to me better.
1: I know, same like they here. they
0: connected with me, maybe just because through life experience, they didn't care as much about what it might entail to be talking to be friends with like a disabled person i'm not really sure or maybe just because when you're a kid you're very caught up in like how are the other kids gonna think about me am i gonna get bullied for this decision yeah and as an adult like it doesn't matter as much
1: i met a bunch of i or this is a theory of mine but i was always really close with my students support people And they were usually in their early 20s to mid 30s. They were always very patient or, you know, stereotypically patient um, and well-humored people. I was so lucky in uh, primary school and in high school that every single support worker I had was like good natured and interesting and helpful and uh, i think i think like a lot of adults like had a tendency to be more open or friendly with me because they were kind of like concerned about how my own demographic would treat me like whether or not i would actually be accepted into a normal like 14-year-old kid's social environment and then of course like adults Uh, Disproportionately ascribe maturity to disabled children because of all the shit that that we've been through, which is probably uh, not a mistake to do that. But I, uh, I, man, like I did have lots of like age appropriate friends, but I remember having a lot of adult influences. And uh, yeah, I was, I'm very grateful for that. That was one of the hardest adjustments about university was how it was just basically like a fucking shanty town of people my age. And I was like, where are the fucking adults? Like, I'm kind of freaked out.
0: I had a hard time with the transition to university also for a similar reason. I think my town is, like, it skewed old, for sure, because it was sort of a retirement town. Yeah. So, like, a lot of the people I knew were friends of my parents, and so they were older. Um, but I was able to learn pretty quickly how to like hang with them. Yeah. And then I think I sort of just socialized differently as a result because yeah. probably a majority of the people through my formative years were not my age. For sure. And then when I moved to university, same thing. It was just like, oh, all of these people are my peers and I feel like they're younger than me now, for some reason. I know. Because I was always used to these older people. Plus, people just doted on me as a disabled person in this small town. They were just like, oh, good for you. You're going to be like famous one day or whatever. Yeah. And so I, I just thought that that was the case. I was like, oh, we've d- d- disabled people just become famous? That's yeah. pretty sweet. And then I got to <laughs> university and I was a nobody. They were like, yeah. okay, keep up. You got to figure out how to you type your notes because we're not going to do it for you. Yeah. And I was like, but I'm a hero.
1: <laughs> yeah. And also, like, I found, I, and we've talked about this, but I also found that the, the disabled social circles, not that they were not accommodating or open-minded or whatever, but you were definitely held to a different Standard than your able-bodied friends, one hundred percent. Yeah, and it's not—it's not like Mean Girls, but yeah, like based on your on your major, like you could be judged for aspects of your personality, like in a disabled social circle, that you know able-bodied people would be maybe afraid to bring up, yeah, or something. Or there could be some aspect of your personality that your your the able-bodied world is kind of shielding you from because they're not they're afraid to call you out, let's say. And then your fucking wheelie friends come along and are like, like, like you know that the, your reaction to this thing is not appropriate or something. You're like, yeah. what? Fuck, I didn't know I that. don't
0: care that you're disabled. I know all the same things as you. So let's yeah. talk about what's different.
1: For sure. But then there's also like a kind of uh, competitiveness that was kind of there, like a hierarchy.
0: How did you rate yourself based on other client other other wheelies at Carlton.
1: I don't know. Like I was extremely shy and I was like really I had a lot of imposter syndrome. So I was constantly thinking I was gonna fail out of school. And then I would meet these these like wheelies who were like head of the Carlton Disability Awareness Center. And they're like some of them were in their like law masters, others were taking like advanced arts degrees and writing papers and they'd show me their syllabus and it was like ten miles long and I'd be like you guys are so fucking smart. I'm, I can't, I don't even know how you do it. And then, like, I was also afraid of asking for help outside of my able bodied friend circle and, and like wheelies that I met, they, they mastered the art of balancing their needs and, and their schedule and everything. And I, I didn't have a fucking clue. So I was quite shy and nervous. So I'd rank myself low, but then I'd also have it at like internalized ableism that would say, like, you know, why does that really wear shoes like that? Or like, why yeah. do they drive this kind of power chair? So there was like a, a caddy bullshit side of myself that I was constantly sort of like at war with.
0: For me, it was very, very similar because I got to Carlton and then I I was, like I said, I was like, oh, I'm, trust me, people tell me I'm going to be famous. Yeah. And then I realized everyone had been telling all the disabled people that
1: yeah exactly and they yeah. were all
0: trying to be famous so they were all basically like i'm going to be a lawyer i'm going to be a doctor i'm going to like and i was like oh i'm taking diploma at carlton too yeah. for at uh, uh, uh,
1: we're all like yeah like you know i had an iep but i was also the top of my class yeah and so yeah you have realized like you're at the hogwarts academy of like special wheelies And we all think we all think we're fucking Harry Potter. Turns out we're what, Ron Weasley?
0: Yeah, exactly. For me, I think it kind of went the opposite way. I was like, oh, none of this matters. I nobody's gonna care what my GPA is when I go to apply for a job. They just care if I pass or not, basically.
1: Yeah, I didn't have that realization right away. I had to fail I had to fail one of my semester courses in third year.
0: Oh, I failed early. That was my, my gift. Mm-hmm. I failed early because I, I was like, oh, I can just basically control my own destiny now. <laughs> so I started partying hard, like yeah. arguably way too hard, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are trying to give us encouragement when they say stuff like that. Like, oh, you're great. Like, good for you. But it just puts so much pressure on me. And then I got there and everyone else had this pressure. And I was like, I'm not going to compete with all these people. Like, I don't care if this guy becomes a lawyer. I'm just going to continue my arts
1: degree. It, Yeah. The Carlton was the first time that the playground uh, was just exclusively wheelies.
0: Yeah. It was really surreal. So when you got there and you you see all of these other disabled people, where did you rank yourself? Like, middle of the pack, bottom of the pack, or race you still top of the pack?
1: I was focused on telling myself that I wasn't disabled. So does that put you at the top of the pack? I don't know where that puts me.
0: Like in your own mind at the time?
1: I mean, it depends how you look at it. Like I, in my head, I was like, okay, I need to walk every day because I don't want to lose that. Because if I lose that, I might, my back is going to get worse. And
0: You're like seeing someone being fed in the cafeteria. And
1: and I'm like terrified. Yeah, exactly. I'm terrified and it has nothing to do with them. And it's purely, it's purely my own anxieties and biases and fear projected onto these people who are just trying to yeah, fucking exist.
0: But we all had that, those same anxieties.
1: Mm-hmm. I, it depended, again. Like, there were wheelies at Carlton who I really wanted to, I really wanted to be in the good graces of. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to be in the same ranks of. But there were definitely like, in my head, I'd be like, well, that person is really poorly socialized.
0: But that's what I mean. Like, when you say same ranks. Is it like a social rank? Is it a physical rank? Is it an intellectual rank? It's not that simple. Uh,
1: So, uh, okay, so I would just say primarily it was a social rank for me.
0: Okay. Do you want to be well perceived as a well rounded person as much as this other person you were
1: Mm -hmm. comparing yourself to? I do not want my association with the Carlton attendant care program to sequester me from the able-bodied world.
0: Yes. Yeah, I had the same thing where when I got a little bit more disabled, as like the first year passed, I started eating in my bedroom because I didn't want to be seeing struggling to feed myself in the cafeteria with all the other disabled people because I felt like that would make me look more disabled.
1: I had a roommate in university. Who had CP and um, he had the same thing where he was insistent on feeding himself certain foods. Like it would take him, it would take him all of his dinner meal plus 50% of a session to like eat a pile of corn. We would watch him like slowly get the spoon to the plate and slowly bring the spoon up to his mouth. And if anyone startled him through this process, it was, it was done he would have to start all over again.
0: I kind of respect
1: that. I and I, like yeah, I get it too. I completely understand cuz I want to eat my own fucking corn as well. And I don't want to have it spoon-fed to me by some asshole that I just met who's only doing this uh, you know, because he needs to make a couple mu- a couple bucks uh in his first year of fucking economics or something.
0: I don't even know if it's about that, like for me at least it's a sense of accomplishment for myself. Yeah. It has nothing to do with, like, I don't want to rely on other people. Because that doesn't really bother me. I've had to do that my whole life. But it was like, I want to prove to myself that I can still do this.
1: Yeah. There's also a, a bully inside of me.
0: Which startled him, so he dropped his corn. <laughs> well, I thought it...
1: I did think it was funny at the time. And I know it's it's cruel.
0: I definitely... To you and my other friends at CP, I'll admit as terrible as this makes me sound, I still love getting that like drastic jump out of you.
1: I get that, but my roommate and I at the time were not close enough uh, for it to be entirely love. Right, because you know, like we're we're both very young. Disabled people who have never really had to like n- not only have never had disabled friends but were also cohabitants, and he probably sort of reflected
0: all of those insecurities you just talked about
1: for sure. So there's there's passive aggressive energy between us constantly in that first year, and so some of that resentment would come out at the cafeteria. Yeah, and I feel I feel guilty about it now. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure there are elements of his behavior that he feels guilty about too, but you know we're not perfect people, and these are the kinds of things that we would love to be we would love to see represented in fiction. Yeah, disabled people behaving badly on the basis of ableism imparted to them,
0: but not necessarily even ableism. Sometimes you're just not a great person. Yeah, that's realistic. Well, I had a roommate like that, too, where I enjoyed taking the piss out of, but I don't... I think part of it came from, like, a sense of... I almost felt like he was blind to all of the self-awareness I had, and instead of admiring that he was not just trying to be better than everyone or whatever as a result of that insecurity... I tried to, like, make fun of him sometimes. And I definitely learned a lot about myself when I lived with him just because I was like, oh, this is fun, but it's not fun because it's not mutually fun. And then I had another roommate who had no arms and no legs. And that dude was more able-bodied than some of my able-bodied friends. Like, I remember the first night... He was my roommate. He had someone come make him a full plate of dinner. He ate a lot. It was incredible. And they'd make him a full plate of dinner, put the plate down on the table, and then they'd leave. And I remember being like, where are you going? He has to be fed. Yeah. Like, he has no arms and no legs.
1: Yeah, yeah. And no utensils.
0: He had a utensil on the table beside the plate. And I'm <laughs> like, he can't put that up.
1: Yeah.
0: And then... So I left and I was like, oh, I need to see (laughs) this. So I just went out to make small talk with him. Basically, like, obviously, I wanted to introduce myself and try to build a rapport, but I also wanted to watch him feed himself. And like, obviously, he'd done it a hundred times. And um, he was very graceful. It was mesmerizing (laughs) to watch. (laughs) And that made me realize, oh, like, I don't have to be insecure about the things that I can't do. I offer something, he offers something, we can meet somewhere in the middle, and that's good enough. And that definitely helped me grow as a person.
1: The thing is that in any way that we find ourselves overcompensating, it's going to reverberate through our lives uh, in a negative fashion. Somebody else is going to pay for our need to overcompensate.
0: Well, and also like if you... Go back far enough that overcompensation naturally comes from an insecurity. So if you can just face that insecurity, then it's a way healthier way to. Obviously, way easier said than done.
1: Yeah, your first roommate that you mentioned, like it sounds like you are maybe having fun with him or teasing him because of his lack of. Self-awareness. On some level, did you think that he should be more self-aware? So you were trying to nudge him in that direction?
0: Yeah, but I don't think that was fair of me to do. Like, I don't have to hold people to the same standard I hold myself.
1: One thing that you do as a friend is try to nudge people toward taking themselves less seriously.
0: Yes. Well, when he was like open, bold-faced lying to me, Yeah. He would say like, oh, I did this crazy thing yesterday. And I was like, no, you didn't. I was here. And that was like, you don't have to lie. Like, whatever you did is good enough. You don't have to be something you're not. But the way I handled it sometimes was like, I don't know, like, I think he enjoyed hanging out with me. He liked, like, I had a lot of parties. And he would always come and he was welcome to come. And like, I think he enjoyed himself. But my friends and I would all be... Like, sometimes he was like the George Costanza of the group sometimes. You know what I mean? Where like, he kind of knew that he was the butt of a joke, but he was fine with it because he's still involved.
1: And he would neurotically wind himself up. And then the joy of hanging out with him would be in diffusing his... Frustration, or potentially playing, playing up to it to the point of a laugh. I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. But we ended up being roommates for a while, and it mellowed out quite a bit after that. Uh, we never really got that close though, because we just saw the world very differently.
1: Yeah, I understand. I actually, I have many regrets about the way that I behaved.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: In that predominantly disabled environment.
0: I think it's just like you said, we just got shoved into this, you know, I don't want to sound like a victim here, I did do things I regret. I think it comes from just not knowing how to cope in that situation, because we were never exposed to anything like that before, and it was like sink or swim, and we could have just graciously handled it. It's like one of
1: these things, too, where um, like communities are built around... Aspects of your identity, which you are proud of and you want to cultivate and explore and understand better, there's like a less of a sense of community, or there was at the time in 2007 and eight, less of a disabled communal sense because, like, none of us are taught to be proud of being disabled. Like, what the fuck is that? That's not a thing that happens. Like, disability is an annoying thing that is constantly pulling you away from the critical path of your
0: life. Well, I was taught to be proud to be disabled in spite of my disability rather than, like, be proud to be in spite of my disability. You know what I mean? Like, the disability was the thing to overcome instead of just the disability was a different way that I had to overcome the same thing everyone else is overcoming. Seeing all these other disabled people cope in all of these different ways as it go It doesn't matter so much how you cope, as long as we're all in it together.
1: I, uh, I understand that on principle, but I couldn't live that when I was 22.
0: For sure. 18, 19, 20 even. Like, I was not. I made a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Same here. But I think everyone did at that age, too. And will probably look back at us in 10 years today and be like, man, I handled that situation terribly.
1: <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, that's what growth is. Yeah. If you relate too strongly with who you were 10 years ago, <laughs> there's a problem. Yeah. Um Do you want to talk about Black Mirror for a while?
0: I do.
1: You're moving your lips like you're about to play a clip. You have clip lips.
0: I was making sure we have the clips. Oh. <laughs> and we do. Beautiful. So this week, Jamie, I was like, hey, Jamie, what do you want to watch this week? And he's like, I kind of wanted to watch something from Black Mirror, but I've never seen it. Do you know what we can watch? And I have seen most of it. So I picked this episode, and it's, I think, the only really episode I could think of. Anyone out there who's seen Black Mirror, let us know if there are other Black Mirror episodes we can talk about. Because it is one of those shows that's like, Really messed up in a way where maybe you can relate it to disability. I talked to Justine about this episode, and she was like, "Oh, you know what's the one where someone fucks a pig?" <laughs> and first of all, I didn't remember that that happened. And then I was like, "All right, how about this? If you can give me a thesis on how that is about disability, we will cover that episode." Uh-huh. So I, this is me publicly calling out Justine. To give me a thesis and I will cover it. If she can give me a... And she will. She's very creative when it comes to that kind of thing. Right. She'll tell me she'll tell me how it's about.
1: So you're saying it's only a matter of time before you watch the pigfucker episode?
0: I'm just warning you, yeah.
1: <laughs> um so it's actually a lie, Tony. I have seen most of Black Mirror.
0: But not this episode?
1: what I have forgotten is like, I was checking in with you to to see if there was a disability-themed one. Okay. Because I think I've blocked out quite a bit of that show from my memory because of the the weight of a lot of the themes that it tackles and yeah. just its overall tone.
0: Had you seen this episode before?
1: Um, no. Okay. I had heard of the episode, and oddly enough, I had heard parts of the soundtrack. That's one little quirk about me is that I like to listen to popular soundtracks of tv shows and movies when i bike it has a
0: great soundtrack it does the score is great and then the tracks that they choose for like setting the scene in terms of which era they're in and stuff Mm -hmm. are always bangers yeah it's
1: um do you know what the title means black mirror uh no someone told me that it it's a reference to screen time and what your phone looks like before you turn it on. It's the reflection of your face mm-hmm. in your phone. Okay. So it's the show is like a cautionary anthology about our relationship with technology. Yeah. And typically it's this um it's the non-deterministic element of or I guess deterministic element of technology in that. Our tech seems to determine how we conduct our lives more so than we determine our relationship to the technology. Uh, So it's kind of like a lack of introspection or self-awareness when it comes to consuming our phones and apps and stuff like that. And uh, so every episode is kind of like a Twilight Zone uh, tale in the near future uh, where some new technology is introduced into the lives of average people. And that tech has an adverse effect on their lives. Do you want to describe the premise of the episode we watched?
0: Let's start with a clip because I heard this line and I figured you've probably heard this so many times um, that you probably relate pretty well. Wow. You like it? It's just so big. (laughs) I
1: don't even think that's part of the clip I collected. No, I got that one. (laughs) You're a jackass. (laughs) You can relate, right? I would prefer you speak for yourself,
0: Tony. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big dish energy response right there. Okay, tell us what this episode's about. So,
1: it's a story about two women who meet at a nightclub in 1987 one of the women is very shy she seems to have very little experience both socially and in the party scene and like just romantically in general so she gets hit on by this like super gregarious party girl um who buys her drinks and she asks her about herself and she touches her face and loves her glasses You know, like it's like a meet cute where like a clearly outgoing person sees something authentic in a deeply shy woman played by Mackenzie Davis, and so she tries to court her. So you think you think you're watching the beginning of a young, like same-sex relationship, and it's like kind of there's electricity in the air, and there's a lot of like 80s vibes and pop culture. So you get like the pains of Nostalgia while you're watching because it's really well staged and it's like a well-constructed romantic uh, comedy. So basically, um, you start to notice little details around the edges of this opening act, I guess, that suggest that something else is afoot. Uh, Characters refer to themselves in the past tense. Uh, I never used to do things like this. For example, when the two girls uh, are dancing at the club.
0: And you you can tell that they're like in their 20s, basically.
1: Yeah. Or they're making remarks about what everyone is wearing. And it's like, oh, it seems like um, this is everyone's impression of how they should look. And there's like uh, people playing old arcade machines and remarking about how retro they are.
0: But you can also tell that the lines were... Deliberate enough to try to steer you in a direction without shoving it down your throat. Like, the first time I saw this episode, I didn't really get the twist right away.
1: That's actually what I love about it, is that there is sort of a larger twist in play, but it's very subtly referenced to. And none of the characters say things that they wouldn't otherwise say. Like, you know, there's no unnecessary exposition that where a character says something that you know, they should already know. Um, So it doesn't, it's not like a Christopher Nolan movie where it's constantly explaining the machinations of its, like, more plot-headier details. Um, And so I loved it that way. Um, And I think that's kind of one of the benefits of the anthology format. You know, like, Black Mirror, every episode is a different world with different characters, but what carries from episode to episode are the themes that the show is interrogating. So... There's a kind of coherence uh, in the episodes from the, the manner in which it sort of tackles these issues, if that makes sense. And it also gives the show the liberty to tackle a wide range of different themes and aesthetics and to also incorporate a whole bunch of interesting actors and characters uh, without sort of belaboring for too long on any one idea. So I actually love the
0: format. I don't know. It's very hard to explain without watching it. But like, even when I talked to you about it, I had to kind of pitch how it's a disability episode. And you can't yeah. really do that without exposing the whole plot.
1: For sure. I, I've always said that I would love to write a story in which the main character is disabled, but it's never revealed until the end of the film. Because the problems that the disabled person has to tackle rarely involve their physical disability. They're navigating, like the the trappings of a of a dying relationship, or they're
0: you are just always filling their nipples up. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Or like they don't think about their disability, therefore neither does the audience. Right. So I thought it would be really interesting, like in a kind of six sense gimmicky way. To make an entire movie in which it's not really revealed until the end, that part of the reason that our main character has encountered so much friction in just trying to exist is because, in fact, they are in a wheelchair.
0: And this is a very clever, on-brand, black mirror way to do that.
1: For sure. And it, that's why I liked this show, actually, because it it was packed to the brim with ideas, much like a puzzle film from chris nolan but it didn't hit you over the head with all of the with the solution to its puzzle right um so can you is there like a clip you could there's a clip about Mackenzie davis not being able to dance
0: i've never been on a dance floor never as in the whole time you've been alive never never what do you like amish (laughs) that's one sheltered existence you got there yeah as far as my family is concerned, I can't do anything. Well, no one knows about even half the shit I get up to. With your folks though, it's from a place of love though, right? They worry. They don't worry. Just the concept of me enjoying myself would blow their minds. What would you like to do that you've never done? Oh, so many things. San Junipero is a party town. All up the grabs. Midnight's two hours away. I feel like in order for us to really talk about any of this, we have to just jump ahead and explain the twist.
1: Yeah, so Mac- Mackenzie Davis and her girlfriend... Uh, the actress's name, I don't remember. Um, it turns out that they are actually inside of a metaverse and they are two elderly women um, in an old folks home approaching end of life.
0: One of them is quadriplegic.
1: Yeah, so Mackenzie Davis is quadriplegic. We find out toward the end that she has been in a wheelchair for since she was 21. Yeah. So she is a wheelie.
0: Which, when I heard that, I was like, isn't that enough time for you to like go on a dance floor? like you could have still lived a life by twenty one
1: yeah, so therein lies the problem with this episode actually um so uh, so we find out that they are both dying and that they spend their they spend like one night a week or something five hours a week, five hours a week at a nightclub uh in a younger version of themselves dancing in the metaverse, yeah, um, and so uh when i I watched the episode twice, and in the second viewing, there's actually a bunch of small talk that occurs around mackenzie davis uh and her girlfriend and like you can hear uh a younger guy talking to another woman about how his knees are really bad, yeah uh, and he had to have a bunch of corrective surgery, and there's other little details that allude to all of the people in this environment actually being older, but again, it's so very subtle, like it does not hit you over the head.
0: Yeah, there's even like that rooftop scene where you're like, how many people do you think are actually dead? I think she used the word dead.
1: Mm -hmm. Because when people die in this program, when they get off palliative care and they die, there's a version of them that is quote unquote, uploaded to the cloud. Mm -hmm.
0: Uploaded to the cloud. Sounds like heaven.
1: Okay, you had another clip of your own. Um, So anyway, um, the problem with all of this, in my mind,
0: Right Wait Let's not jump to like what's bad about
1: it because it okay. does do a
0: lot of things interesting. I think
1: I the yeah the romance at the heart of it is compelling. It's yeah. exciting. It's it, nice,
0: and it, I really do like how it just slowly unravels to the yeah. point where, sort of like you're saying in your idea of like a, don't tell the audience that they're disabled, way you mm-hmm. relate to the characters as who they present in the metaverse. Mm-hmm. Enough that when you find out that they're old or dying or disabled or whatever, you don't really care as much. It it almost is a bit of a hopeful realization that your disability doesn't define your ability to connect with people.
1: It's also a demonstration of the inner lives of elderly people, right? <laughs> Which is something that we don't often think about, right? Uh, and so it's a you you end up having to confront your ageism because you project Mackenzie Davis onto her real life uh, disabled paraplegic body. And same goes with her girlfriend, you know, who like has osteoporosis and can barely move, has to be walked up the stairs. But yet in this in this metaverse, she's so vibrant and she actively pursues uh, physical and emotional relationships with people. And, and like, you, you just realize that as an audience member that you forget that elderly people and disabled people have these needs.
0: Yeah. When you were watching it, did you ever think if you to join this metaverse?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about the philosophical implications of being uploaded to a fucking server. Just the idea that um, identity could be distilled in binary and uploaded to a computer. I, that kind of creeps me the fuck out. Certainly there would...
0: Well, they would They would need a big server for you, for sure. Because, like dick? I said, so big.
1: Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Give me a whole rack of servers for my dick.
0: <laughs> Please. Yeah, you like the racks, eh? More of a rack guy? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to say... No,
1: but anyway, uh, new subject. <laughs> Fucking uploading yourself to a server—that's a creepy idea, is it not? Because it's kind of this weird. No, I would do it, but it's a—it's this strange oversimplification or distillation of consciousness.
0: Yeah, it might not be who I am now, but that's for dead me to finally figure out. <laughs> There'd be packet
1: loss, Tony. Yeah, so I don't want—I don't want to lose any of your packets. I don't want to hang out with.
0: I'm not saying that I'm going to kill myself to do this. <laughs> but yeah. like if you're in a position where it's like you either die and assuming that you believe the lights just turn off when you die and nothing happens. Yeah. This might be a better alternative. One thing I did notice is the uh the world that they obviously like it's a budget and set issue, but they perceive it as this world that you can basically live in forever. Uh-huh. But it seems very small.
1: It does seem very small. And they call it, the term that they have for it is nostalgia immersion therapy or something. Oh, yeah. Which is trying to be this critique of the current state of popular culture.
0: Yeah, where we reboot everything.
1: Yeah, and we are constantly going through cycles of pop cultural products that we've consumed 30 years ago. And we, we want to consume them over and over and over again. Yeah. There's a, a point mid-episode where Mackenzie and her girlfriend have a disagreement. Um, Her girlfriend is constantly evading commitment to Mackenzie because she just wants to have fun before she dies. And actually admitting that she has feelings for someone would be to re-experience some heartache that she went through in her her actual life.
0: I I think the romance was very convincing. They have great chemistry. They're both super attractive, so it's easy to watch for sure. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. There was something refreshing... About it while also this other thread that made me angry throughout. Okay. And I was trying to balance in the two. Maybe angry is a strong word, but.
1: Can, uh, I'll say one thing before I ask you why you're angry, okay? Uh-huh. I I love the slow burn of like classical science fiction. And I, I really like that this um, episode was steeped in a very kind of like, there's a. A heavy aesthetic component to this episode, but most of the meat of the drama is in the dialogue.
0: Yeah, they they definitely really chose the lines carefully to make it like some of the things they said were just strange enough that you're like, maybe some people just talk like that, right? And then other lines, you're like, okay, they're trying to feed us clues here for sure. And I do like that. It- It unraveled nicely. I remember the first time I watched it, albeit I was high, but I watched it and didn't really touch on until pretty late in the episode, figured out what was happening, and then was like, oh, that's so sick. I immediately restarted the episode and watched it again. Cool. And loved it. I watched this particular episode, including the two times for today. Probably like five or six times.
1: Wow, so it really meant something to you. Yeah. Um. So what made you angry?
0: Um. I think it was just the sort of superficial perspective of what disability would be.
1: Yeah, same here.
0: I don't know. I guess it's realistic to a point, but they were really trying to lay it on thick. Once you understand the premise and you understand that twist, you can really read between the lines in terms of what they're trying to tell you about disabled people
1: yeah and it's like pretty dire they
0: don't have fun they don't live a life they don't have sex they don't dance they don't do anything
1: it's really leaning into the tragedy and the, the the social isolation of mackenzie davis and it's quite offensive if you really think about it because like as anthony said she's depicted as being uh debilitatingly shy she also has a wheelie costume. She does have a wheelie costume. I was I kind of called it early on because she's she's dressed down, yeah, uh, for al- almost every scene.
0: It kind of works for her though, I'm being honest, because there was that montage scene where she tries all these different looks, mm-hmm. and none of them were doing it for me. And then she went back to the like simple jean jacket, and I was like, yeah, you're home.
1: So, okay, so picture like you're going to a themed event at a at a club downtown.
0: What's the theme?
1: The theme is uh, <laughs> uh, the early 2000s. Okay. So you're going to, you pr- you probably dress like Britney Spears or like wh- a member of Destiny's Child or something.
0: That's what I'm dressing as? No,
1: no. If you were Mackenzie Davis, you'd have like...
0: Oh, okay. I was I was fully invested. I was like, all right, where are we going? What am I wearing?
1: <laughs> you'd have, like, the, bell, the bell-bottom the bell jeans and the crop top, and, like, I don't know. They dressed her very down, like, incredibly down.
0: She was wearing shorts, which was strange. Yeah. And her, sandals that were, in my opinion, like, not working for her. No,
1: no matter what era she was in, she looked like she got her outfit from the discount rack at Northern Getaway.
0: I, I think that they were trying to make that a product of her resulting lack of socialization, but I think you still would know how to dress. Like I, I don't really see the parallel there.
1: Exactly. So it's 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 in some way making the argument that again, disabled people have no style.
0: Is it because all the nice clothes are on the top shelf? Uh,
1: <laughs> maybe. I mean, or the cl- you can't afford the nice clothes on on uh, disability support.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's also true.
1: Or like nice clothes are usually hard to put on, especially when you're a woman and attendants are like, can you just settle for sweatpants,
0: please? Okay, bye. For sure. But I don't, I have this weird, I have this thing for women in sweatpants.
1: Well, same here, but that's neither here nor there.
0: It's there.
1: (laughs) Sweatpants have evolved uh, in recent years. I'm not
0: even talking about yoga pants though.
1: Oh, you like him looking lazy?
0: I mean, like, everyone likes yoga pants. (laughs) There's something about, like, yeah, I just, this is who I am. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I think there was a clip, we might not have it, but in the episode where one, I wish I remember her name, uh, Kelly, was um, talking about how Yorkie, also is Yorkie a disability name?
1: Kind of feels like it is. Yeah, Mackenzie Davis's character is named Yorkie. Yeah. Which sounds like a name for a poodle.
0: But I don't understand. Is that she had a different name? And they were like, you're disabled now. Hey, Yorkie.
1: It sounds like the pet name that her nurse gave her in the care home.
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: It really fucking does.
0: Maybe her last name was York or something. It Could be. I mean, they also did try to position her family as very conservative and strange so maybe there's a type of people that would name their kid Yorkie but I don't know that, that was a weird detail for me.
1: Sure it is.
0: But there was a scene where Kelly was talking to Yorkie about her choice of clothes Uh-huh. and how it was authentically her in that she didn't seem to care as much about how she's supposed to look she just wanted to be authentically herself and be comfortable. And I think that's the th- same thing I'm attracted to when I see a woman in
1: Okay, fair enough. So you, you attribute it to authenticity and not ascribing to... Yeah. You know, common beauty standards or whatever. Okay, so I get that, but I also think it's just the TV show using shorthand to be like, wheelies don't dress nice.
0: I think you're right. I think that is what they were trying to do.
1: Yeah, especially with like an actress is notably like stunning yeah i mean they have those that scene where she puts on all these elaborate period appropriate dresses you know she, she has a fancy outfit for the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and she looks stunning and i i know I'm yeah but stupid.
0: none of them really works for me
1: not for you I mean speak for yourself tony
0: really which one do, did it most for you
1: Aha, uh-huh, there was one where she looked like Kim Basinger in, like, the 89 Batman. Was that the one where their hair slicked back? Yeah, I was ready to... Oh, fucking... you like
0: that, like, power woman look.
1: I kind of do, I gotta be honest. Michelle Pfeiffer, oh my god.
0: Ah, uh, you're like the the woman who's gonna, like, speak to the manager for you. Yeah. <laughs> when, when there's no
1: ramp. No. Like, if it's the 80s and she's, like, in a... Okay,
0: You want someone who will call call motion for you and get you a new joystick cover or a new joystick switch rather than you having to do it.
1: Yeah, by penalty of a high heel in the back or something.
0: To me, that hairstyle just screams like, aren't you going to get a headache soon?
1: (laughs) We're being really, really material right now.
0: They were using the materialistic elements to try to portray her disability.
1: Okay, fair enough.
0: that's right defense
1: so yeah, like the 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 show literally thinks that disabled people are super duper inexperienced, and so on the one hand, you could say that her lack of style is because she's authentic, but I think what it actually means is she's pure,
0: even if that's true, right? like I don't think it's unreasonable it's unfair, but I don't think it's necessarily unrealistic that disabled people are. Proportionately inexperienced compared to able-bodied people. Inexperienced,
1: but 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 experience can mean
0: a whole bunch of things, right? I'm like, talking about the the of experience that this episode is referring to, like
1: like going to the club and being solicited by a sexy lesbian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, I guess so. But she should be otherwise experienced, you know, like that. Maybe
0: I think if they said. She was paralyzed at the age of 14. I would have understood it a bit more. Exactly. Because it's like, that's your formative life. Sure. Up until 21, you can live a life. But Tony, she had no
1: personality. Like, like for the first 30 minutes of the episode before she has sex, she's literally looking at the world as though she's never been in the world. Like, she's constantly like Mackenzie Davis in the headlights. And it's really a, it's quite annoying. She has like Spielberg wonder face for twenty five minutes. Yeah, and you're like you've been in the world like you're like you're you've survived to your seventies. You're not a dumbass. Like
0: yeah, but that, that that I agree with the episode here that from the ages of twenty one onward, she didn't really do anything. Like she wasn't really living.
1: Oh fuck off! I- she was
0: literally not even able to move her eyes. That's not true.
1: In At the end of the episode, she's in a coma because she's going to die. But that doesn't mean that she was in a coma her whole life. That She's just a paraplegic.
0: Oh, uh, I, I sort of read it as she had been in that bed for 40 years.
1: No, no. No?
0: She's in, like in a palliative
1: care bed.
0: Yeah, I thought it was like this is sustaining you for the next four years of your life till you die of natural causes. Mm,
1: That would suck so much. I really hope that's not the case. That's
0: what I thought. And that's where all of this was coming from. If it is true, and we'll just never know this because I don't think they were ever explicit, but if she was like in a wheelchair and still bobbing around in her chair, then yeah, for sure that she has a bunch of experiences and should still know how to act and dress and stuff. But I honestly think that the episode is trying to say, at 21 years old, her life was basically put on pause.
1: Well, I don't like, 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 fuck fuck the depiction of disabled characters as childlike. Yeah.
0: Well, also, the disabled picture, depiction being like, once you're injured in a car accident, your life ends. For sure. And you stop gleaning anything. Yeah. And then... They like toward the
1: end of the episode, (laughs) there's a bunch of like, okay, so throughout the episode, there's a bunch of dates that the two women have. Kelly, Mackenzie Davis's girlfriend, is constantly in this kind of like push me, pull me mode where when they're at the club, she like devotes her full attention, you know, like locking eyes, kissing, dancing, whatever. But then as soon as Mackenzie Davis wants more, you know, uh, she'll pull away and be like, I'm just trying to have fun. Fuck you. I don't want to like you. So this happens like three times. And then Mackenzie Davis is forced to be like in pursuit. Like you need to acknowledge that you have feelings and everything. So it's like very real actually. And it sort of is constantly positioning Mackenzie as needy because she's so emotionally inexperienced that when she has a taste of a relationship, suddenly she sort of loses her emotional compass the moment she feels oncoming rejection. And I I know that disabled people have different attachment dynamics and this is almost a realistic thing that can occur, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. You know, like I feel my breakups I think to an amplitude greater than potentially an equivalent able bodied person.
0: It's like the scarcity principle.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: When you feel like something was already potentially outside of your reach, falls out of your grasp, you feel like you're never going to have that chance again sometimes.
1: Yes. Like you won the lottery and then somebody robbed the bank.
0: Lightning doesn't strike twice.
1: hmm I think the, the show accidentally got this right.
0: You think it was accidental?
1: Yeah, like it kind of frustrated me. Because I can already tell that it has a very superficial sort of impression of Mackenzie Davis's lived disabled experience. Yeah. So then when it makes her needy, it's like kind of annoying.
0: I think the ultimate goal of this episode was to inspire hope that this type of reality could allow people the opportunity to, you know, live life again or differently or whatever. And the way that they did that was use leverage like the most vulnerable people they could think of. For sure. As a selling tool. Like look, if it works for disabled people, <laughs> exactly. You can have cancer and still have a good time.
1: Yeah, exactly. You can have cancer or be a paraplegic and still feel sexually vital. Yeah. Still flirt and dance and fuck around and be a jerk. So yeah, there's definitely some wish fulfillment here at the end of the movie or the show though there's a one final fight before they finally decide to get married and love each other why are you here? I was looking for you where did you go?
0: Not like a change of music how the hell is this your era? you hid from me one I did not two I owe you zero and
1: three
0: it's 2.2 It's about who owes who, it's about manners. You don't know who I am. You don't know what this means. This means fun. Or it should. And this? This is not fun, okay? This is not fun. So you don't feel bad. Maybe you should feel bad. Or at least feel something
1: it's good shit um this 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 clip is alluding to what I was talking about earlier, where uh, Kelly is evasive and Mackenzie is slightly needy the The fights are very realistic. there are many examples that the show uses where um technology that is meant to better one's life actually becomes the catalyst for the breakdown of a of a romantic relationship.
0: Yeah, they're very good at sort of meshing technology and its artifice with real, raw human emotion.
1: Yeah, and the incompatibility of those things and the failure of the technology to consider the emotional impact. Right. And it it always does this very, very well. It's like pretty clear that Charlie Brooker the show's creator, like, uh, has thought a lot about his own uh, romantic entanglements and difficulties. And so anytime there's a fight on this show, it'll stick with you. You will connect to it.
0: Yeah. Also, like, the well, I mean, part of it is the acting. There's, like, a few scenes where Kelly is really, like, emotionally raw. And you can just see it in, like, her eyes and her mouth quivers. And she's just like fully oh, in that character. Yep. And it's it's really great. I want to play a couple more clips because disability. Sorry.
1: No, never with a woman. Never
0: with anyone. Not anyone? What in town or no. No one nowhere. Guess you deflowered me. <laughs> I deflowered you. <laughs> what is this, Mary England? Shut up.
1: You've had relationships, though.
0: Mm-mm. Hello, you got a fiance? It's complicated. Yeah, I'll say. What arrangement? Would you be able to muster yourself to agree to, to marry someone that you don't love?
1: Oh, God. I would not. I would not.
0: Under any situation? What if if something like this, where it's like, so that we should, actually, I guess, backtrack a bit. but basically, Yorkie gets engaged to her care worker because Yorkie's family isn't cool with the idea of her uploading her consciousness to the cloud so she can die in real life and live it out in San apparel. There is a legal loophole that allows a spouse to overturn the next of kin uh, or I guess like has the highest authority, veto power, veto the decision and so they get engaged and they're going to get married so that she can so that Yorkie can upload her consciousness. And I don't know, like if I was in, if I had a DNR still, and the only way to avoid the DNR being acknowledged was to marry someone, I'd probably do it. Well, that's
1: different because it's to your benefit. But if it was to their benefit to be married to you, I would be cautious.
0: Well, but that's what this is about, right?
1: All the stories about like disabled people being exploited by fake spouses or something—I don't know—for money or whatever else.
0: Yeah, it is definitely a cautionary tale. But like, I didn't see Greg as a villain at all. Like, he seemed like he was trying to do the right thing. Genuinely good guy. Yeah.
1: Well, because he cared about her. Yeah. So in this case, I mean, I suppose it's it's it it's okay. But it's also again that other thing that like. This woman literally is, like, in the real world, completely ineligible for a spouse. I do not like that at all. Like, it's literally just a, a plot device where the writer asks themselves, who is the the most sad, like, avatar that we could have who benefits from the metaverse? And they thought immediately, oh, paraplegic woman.
0: Yeah. I, I think what we really need to know if in their mind, When you're getting an accident at 21 years old, you end up in a bed for the rest of your life. Because that does feel like where this is coming from. And if I'm right, it makes sense why they made a lot of these choices. But it doesn't make sense that that is how they view disability. Like the idea that you can't live after injury. Yeah. I want to know what you think about this clip as well. I didn't know if I wanted to try it, but... I mean, Jesus, without this place, I never would have met someone like you. Yeah, you could have. No, I wouldn't. We could have met outside all this. No. You would not have got me at all. At all. If we really met, I mean,
1: if we really met, you you wouldn't like me. Try me.
0: Or you'd... You wouldn't want to spend time with me. You'd come and then... Try me. Why? Why? What's the point? What? Where are you? Houston? Carson City, Nevada.
1: Like, that's another situation where I wish this dialogue wasn't true. Yeah. But it's pretty fucking true. Like, it... At the very least, it speaks to the lack of confidence that a lot of disabled people have, where they're like really sure that they're not going to succeed in this domain.
0: Yeah. When you feel like you're not worthy of love because you haven't had it, it really reinforces the insecurity that you're never going to have it. And I think what happens is then it's easier for you to consciously or unconsciously push people away because you think I'm unworthy of love. So if this person says they love me, there must be a catch. There must be hiding some other truth. It it gets hard to trust people because that fear can sink so deep into you that you're like, when is the other shoe going to drop? For sure. And that sounds like, yeah, you're right. This is uncomfortably resonant. Definitely. I have been in situations where I'm like, I bet you if I was able-bodied, this could have gone somewhere. You know? But on the flip side, do you think you and I would have met if either one of us wasn't disabled?
1: Maybe. Uh, we're both we're both of similar disciplines.
0: Yeah, but how much of that do you think is because of the disability? <laughs> I honestly think that I took computer-heavy stuff because it was an easy thing for me to do.
1: Yeah.
0: I think I would have preferred... Like industrial design or something.
1: Yeah, I would have been maybe like a teacher or a writer.
0: You could still be a writer.
1: I don't know. Like when you have an arts degree, like the financial insecurity is harder to live with.
0: Right. Yeah, you can't just pick up and stay on a friend's couch.
1: Yeah, or like the types of things that you would do in between gigs, I can't do. I would not wouldn't be able to work in the service industry or drive truck or whatever yeah
0: you couldn't just be like worst case i'll get a job at mcdonald's <laughs> but i have a real fear of being unemployed because i even though i am always like yeah but it's a it's like a employee's market right now you can easily get a job everyone's hiring the employees have all the cards i don't know i'm always like yeah but there's a subset of jobs that i am qualified for, obviously, and then beyond that, a subset of jobs that I can physically do.
1: And also, you're not going to be on the job market for as long as everyone else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, this is really close to the truth, but almost accidentally, just by how the plot is constructed,
0: I think. Yeah. I mean, like it's it's a superficial truth, so I don't think they had to dig very deep to get here.
1: What I, again, really, really enjoy about this show, it's an episode about disability without disability uh, on the screen.
0: Yeah, ever. I just realized you must be right in that Yorkie must have at one point been able to communicate, speak, probably wheel around in her chair, because otherwise, how would she come to this agreement with Greg? For sure.
1: They didn't meet together in the metaverse and sort it out.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in that case, that's a huge loophole that does... Validate my theory? It validates your theory. And it also just insinuates that their impression of disability is once you're in a wheelchair, you stop thinking and being a person, which is true. I haven't thought in a long time about (laughs) that.
1: I was gonna say the only the only uh scene in this fucking entire episode of disability on display is when we have to watch Kelly like awkwardly saunter up a set of poorly constructed wooden stairs at her nursing home.
0: Why is there stairs in a nursing home?
1: Yeah, up to the primary entrance of the facility. Go fuck yourself, Charlie Brooker. Get out of here. Yeah.
0: Do I see better stairs at Lakeside cottages.
1: Yeah, there are better stairs behind me. My my fucking stairmaster disability edition.
0: Yeah, Jamie, what would your favorite decade be to live? If like if you had to get into a time machine or a metaverse and you had to pick past only, you can't go future.
1: When would I want to live? I I don't know. I'm not really a historian, and I love computers. I don't I don't think I could I don't think I would enjoy an era where video games are in their infancy
0: like the 80s or the 90s.
1: I was thinking if I could live in any other era it might be the 70s. Yeah,
0: that's my era too. That's for the music, purely on music and
1: aesthetics which may not even really matter to me like as a person living in that era cuz you know you're looking at it through the lens of retro nostalgia so you can't really make an accurate choice
0: for me it would be the 60s or the 70s 70s for the music and 60s for like if i'm trying to be just free spirited in wild. so like the 60s where it's at, just be a hippie but 70s for sure for music
1: yeah also just for the for the pace of society like free pre-internet
0: yeah but you would still be you that's actually one thing i noticed is that i'm still in- me and then, you still look the same as you did yesterday. <laughs> and that's been concerning to me. <laughs> um, th- there was a scene early on in the episode where uh, Kelly goes to the bathroom. The guy she was with sits there alone and just kind of like looks at his watch and then just sits there. And all I could think was, imagine not having a phone to go to. Cause nowadays, if you have half a second of alone time, your instinct is to go straight to your phone and just check whatever thing. And I've been really conscious of that. So I try to not do it and let myself be uncomfortable or bored, which is really hard to do.
1: Oh, you sound like one of those like uh, screen conscious people who insists that they have healthy relationship with screens.
0: It's probably just my phone. Like, I'm still on my computer all day, and then I watch TV. <laughs> so I know like, it's... A- it, for me, it's just like that. I'm really conscious of getting addicted to, did it get in your message, or like, is there another notification coming?
1: I get stuck to, you get trapped in that, like, s- that circular ecology of distraction technologies. Yeah. And you're just going around and around and a fucking round. And I get it. But it's also, whenever people are like, you should stop looking at screens uh, uh, by 10 p.m. And you should fucking not bring your phone to the can. <laughs> and, like, uh, what would life be, the last two years, be without screens? I would literally, like, not. And I know this is a stupid observation. You would figure something else now? Would I?
0: Yeah. You think disabled people in the 80s just at the wall all day?
1: No, they probably read a lot of books yeah. and they, pro- they probably had domestic animals and played chess. Yeah. They, they probably wrote diaries and smoked cigarettes.
0: There's other things you can do.
1: Yeah. But I'm just saying like, like when people shame screens, it's like kind of the same as shaming other assistive devices.
0: No, because you're not using your screen in that moment as an assistive device. <laughs>
1: Fine Tony, that's a, that's a good
0: point. Yeah. You can't be like, this is my assistive video game. <laughs> Fuck you. That's not how it works. <laughs> I'm disabled, I need to play this game. I'm leg disabled.
1: I need to I need to jump across the platform as Crash Bandicoot. Yeah,
0: there's no way you can make that. Do you do the thing where your phone turns orange at a certain time?
1: No. Orange is bad.
0: Like it takes the blue light out of your screen.
1: Oh, and what, it tells you to go to bed?
0: Yeah, it's to help you, like, start producing melatonin so you can sleep better. Oh, fuck off. Says the guy (laughs) who never sleeps.
1: (laughs) It's true, I don't sleep. It's true.
0: Yeah, no, I, I do think, like, I'm not saying I'm good at it. I definitely try to be good at it with my phone, but I'm still on my computer a lot. It still
1: feels like when people say that sitting is bad for you and I'm in the fucking vicinity.
0: That's not the same thing. I know it's not, but it feels like it. Because you don't have a choice when it comes to sitting. (laughs) You don't want to do the alternative when it comes to using your computer.
1: I like Crash Bandicoot.
0: Yeah, people like texting (laughs) on Instagram.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have friends on
0: Instagram that I like conversing with. People also like heroin. Oh, true. Attention is a drug, is all I'm saying.
1: It is. You're right. You're absolutely right.
0: And uh, again, I'm not trying to sound preachy because I am by no means good at it anyway. any way. There are days where I literally wake up, go to my computer, I watch a movie while I eat dinner, go back to my computer and go to bed. That happens a lot.
1: It's my whole life.
0: I do agree with the idea that it's probably not that good for me.
1: I agree with it too, but I, in the same way as like, oh, don't have too much caffeine or, you know.
0: Yeah, like I try to think about what I'm watching on Netflix. Sometimes I watch stuff and I realize like, oh, this is the mental equivalent of just eating a bag of chips.
1: Uh, what was the latest example of that for you?
0: Um, Once I gonna pull up my, my Netflix. <laughs> Honestly, my, my, I'm, I'm not really embarrassed of most of this, the furthest one I had to go back to to realize I was eating junk food it was on February 16th. I was watching Love is Blind.
1: Okay, so if you're watching Trash in February, I think it's fine.
0: February sucks. Kim's Convenience is on here. Kim's and
1: Convenience is good. It's the it only, is the good, yeah. It's like one of the only reliably funny Canadian comedies other than *Shit's Creek. I binged Murderville. Murderville's fantastic. Space Force. Space Force? I don't know. It's like it's kind of like middling Michael Scott. I can't tell how dumb he is.
0: It's, it's one of those shows I put on in the background and don't really pay attention to. I honestly don't think I've heard 80% of it.
1: I think we're almost at time. Tony, should we wrap it up? I liked this episode.
0: We did cover a lot. I did have Real Bakers for you again. We never get wheelbreakers.
1: We could play wheelbreakers at the start of the next episode.
0: What do you think would be the worst decade for you?
1: Oh, God. Some wartime decade.
0: Do your answers change if you're able-bodied?
1: Obviously. Because, I mean, if you're disabled, like, you're insane. Actually, if I was...
0: If you're disabled, you're insane? Can we just clip that?
1: No. <laughs> no. No. If Okay. If
0: I'm disabled,
1: the era I want to live in is, like, the year 2080.
0: No, you don't get to be forward-looking. That was the only rule I made: was you can't go to the future. Oh, really? Yeah. Fuck you. Um. Uh, so if I'm disabled, I
1: don't. I want to live this moment because anytime pre-previous pre- to this, I'd just be in a fucking home. Yeah, I feel the
0: exact same way.
1: The older, the worse. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm disabled, but then this is like it also. This is a complicated question because you you got to factor in like gender, race, and class because it like context matters. Blah blah blah.
0: Okay, so what would be the worst era for you to live in as an able-bodied person? You said like war time. Yeah, because you'd be out there fighting, just yeah. kicking people with your huge legs.
1: Yeah, I and mean, that might be fun, but no, we we can't joke about war right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe I'm too much of the mindset that it's never a bad time for a joke.
1: You have to like, you have to be a historian to answer this question amusingly.
0: That's true. All right. We'll to
1: death. Okay, bye people. Thanks for listening.
0: <laughs> bye bye.